the privilege of living someone else's life in existence for a while and being able to understand someone else's life. It, it, it was a privilege to do that. Now, do I fully understand it? No, because our, exist, our worlds are different, right? I have on my phone the CEO of the company if anything goes wrong. So when I got into the truck with a trainer who, you know, a male trainer, that you are at their mercy, quite frankly, and going through places where you don't have a cell phone, those are scary experiences. But I understood I had a, a large safety net of people who would come help me. I was, had dozens and dozens, dozens of people who would come rescue me if I needed rescuing. This gal I was talking to you about, the man I was talking to you about, both of them, and dozens and dozens of other people do not have that safety net. And quite frankly, Sierra England is their only safety net. I'm Todd Dills, and you're listening to the Overdrive Radio Podcast for October 10th, 2019. That was the voice of Pam Wilson you heard at the top. Wilson was hired on with uh, Utah-based large fleet CR England about a year ago as Vice President of Process Development. That's something of a fancy way of saying she was brought in with hopes of improving parts of the company that support those who make the company tick. That's truck drivers, of course. At the time of her hiring, as Aaron Huff wrote in Overdrive's sister fleet publication CCJ earlier this year, among the large number of company-employed drivers that make up the over-the-road division, accounting for around 80% of the entire, uh, entire company's drivers, quote, the large majority of its OTR drivers are in the process of completing the company's 90-day training program after they have earned a CDL, end quote. Boy, is that a whole lot of turnover, as Wilson confirmed in our conversation. Figuring out how to better set those drivers up for success, uh, the company recognized, could pay dividends long term, no doubt. Company executives knew it, and the goal, as Wilson suggested at the top, is to be a better safety net as a company. Particularly important for those who are jumping into a situation where they don't know quite what to expect, as she illustrated. Aaron Huff's story turned heads for another reason, too, though. Wilson, in her 40s, uh, didn't immediately publicly come on board as management upon her hiring. Rather, she called CR England's training academy and started the process of getting her CDL, undercover, as it were, within the training program. What she found was a meaningful new appreciation for the sometimes difficult new driver's experience, part of which she referred to at the top. Ultimately, company recommendations and process changes for support staff in the driver call center with some tweaks aimed at emphasizing empathy in, the, in all in-company exchanges, cut turnover by half in just a few short months early this year. Here's my conversation with Wilson about her undercover assignment from the CDL school to phase one of driver training in England, recorded originally in August. She sits up a little of her background. She was entirely new to trucking when she took on the project to start it off. This is my first step into uh, trucking and transportation in general. I've done a lot. Um, the first part of my career was mostly in sales, and I transitioned to uh, product and process development, depending on what role I was playing, um, and mostly in technology and customer service space. So right. This had been my first my first real step into transportation and really into heavy operational things. Um, 
So right. yeah, Chad England, the CEO, took a big, uh, big risk in hiring me with a very little experience in this industry. We well, certainly started in the right place, I think, to uh, get a get a feel for uh, yes. you know, what's what out on the road. It was an incredible um, tell, introduction, yeah. Uh, tell us how that uh, uh, came to be, and you know what exactly that yeah, entailed. Um, yeah. Um, well, like most trucking companies, it's very difficult to keep drivers, and um, they're no different than anyone else. And uh, the upper leadership, particularly. Uh, Chad and Josh England um, really wanted to change the landscape uh, for our driver, understanding that there was a lot of potential there to retain drivers, but also, you know, there's altruistic motivation too, that you want to live up to what uh, their ideas were going to be coming into this job. And um, sure. so when I came in and interviewed, we talked about multiple options. Chad in particular decided that asked me first if I would consider going undercover. So only Chad and Josh knew of my interview. Um, so it was a unique opportunity. Um, and being the type of personality I am that loves adventure, a little adrenaline and something unusual, that sounded pretty darn awesome. Sure. Why not? I go undercover as a trucking student. Um, so it was agreed and only those two knew of my existence and the HR uh, vice president. Okay, right. um, and so there's three people who knew that I had gone through the school and I uh, was going to school. So that's what I was hired to do. And I went through recruiting just like every other student I called recruiting. I went through the whole process of recruiting um, and was at school uh, within just a few weeks of my first interview with Chad. Where's the, where was the school? Is was it uh, there in in Utah or somewhere? Else? Yep, I went to the Salt Lake School. Um, that we okay. do have five schools, but I I ended up at the where I live, Salt Lake School. But um, yeah, so I stayed in the dorms some of the nights and came home, and um, so it took because I didn't have my permit like some of the other students because it went so quickly. I it took me about three and a half weeks to get through the school. And then I spent another week um, going across the country with a trainer. Okay. So it's just one week. Still undercover. Yeah. yeah. Still undercover. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, not, not a, not the full uh, program, right? The, the, the full training program is a night. No, the training, day, they but... go. <laughs> yeah. The full training program, they'll go out there for uh, the phase one, we call it. Um, is a little more extensive. It goes for about a month or 150 hours, and they go into the phase two training program, which is another 90 days. So all in all, it's about a four. It's about a four month. Uh, about four month process, completely yeah. to be completely out of your training. Uh huh. Yeah, yep. yeah. So that phase two, um, you are running as a driver, but still uh, considered training, and go through some of the training um, dynamics. And, and just to give folks a, an extent of the of the um, you know the man the mandate that it sounds like you were given was to figure out a way to improve uh, the retention rate by almost double is that right or in, or, or uh, cut, cut the uh, cut the loss rate of of new drivers by about half I think was the idea right yeah yeah. Um... 
we needed to cut that churn. The way, I wasn't necessarily given a mandate going in. Yeah, okay. So uh, to Chad's credit, he actually didn't tell me anything. He wanted to be yeah. as authentic as possible. And so I didn't know actually what to expect. I didn't even know if there was going to be something I discovered that would help. Um, I didn't know right. any, really anything about it. I was going in blind um, right. to the point that really on the first day, I didn't even know where to go. <laughs> so I show up at six in the morning the first day and I don't even really know what classroom to go to or anything. Cause I really was, um, Chad wanted to be as authentic as possible because those are the things that matter. You know, you go to the recruiting, if the recruiter doesn't tell you where to go, that matters in your experience. And, um, so it was very important that I really had no preconceived notion of what was supposed to happen just to find out what the experience was. And then, so every day I'd come and I would, um, write down all the different experiences, write down my notes and not even make an assessment on it yet. Um, when you're in yeah. it so heavily and deeply, you have to kind of process things a bit. And I made real and true relationships. That was another interesting thing. I, relationships, actually, I still continue today. Um, and some of my dearest friends came from that experience. And so it was this constant, uh, I, was, I wasn't who I was portraying myself to be, but yet I was. Um, and it was a very, uh, it was actually quite liberating and um, life-changing experience that that five-week, you know, three and a half to four and a half week process. I mean, what exactly, you know, when you when you think about, you know, the driver experience there, uh, going through the training and then getting out on the on the road, um, you know, with their CDL, uh, what did you learn about that, and where where did you identify the biggest sort of issues, I guess. Um, There's a distinction between really uh, two different uh, rules of thought. One being more like, what did I discover tactically uh, with the processes that could improve? And the other was uh, the connection with the drivers um, and what can be improved there because those are two different philosophies even and strategies, but both play in. And I, I can't say even which one plays in more, which is weighted more heavily on some decision to, to leave the company. Um, so if we want to talk about processes in general, as in with any company I've ever been to, where most companies have problems and have hiccups are at handoff, right? So this department or this uh, person hands off to this person or when someone shifts and graduates from the CDL school or all of these things, these handoffs, if the process isn't uh, spelled out specifically and, and understood, that's where most of the time that these that large and small companies will fail. And this one was no different. Um, so there were improvements that could be made there. But that was kind of the low-hanging fruit. You know, those are just small improvements that could help um, increase the, the driver's confidence in the process. Where I found really could make a difference in the industry as a whole is how drivers are perceived and how they're treated, not even specifically Sierra England, because I, I felt they did, you know, a, a fairly good job in treating drivers well, but it's their interaction day to day with everyone they come in contact with. So in my time out on the road, um, and even with the, during school, I was astonished by how society treats drivers and, um, 
and how tall how drivers tolerated it because okay. that's what they were used to and it got me thinking and imagining what it would be if if we could create an environment for the driver that treats them exceptionally instead of just satisfactorily treats them exceptionally what would happen and um and that's what spurred the change um is this understanding that if you treat someone exceptionally, it creates loyalty. And beyond even, it's not even like a psychological game. It's how we should be treating everyone in every walk of life. Our neighbors, the person that we're driving next to us on the freeway, our associates, all of these things, right? It's, it's, it, mm-hmm. it goes without saying, but, but sometimes it needs to be said. <laughs> um, so right. that's what we did. So when I got off the truck, we saw that we identified the processes that could be improved. Um, but more than that, we took an idea of how to treat people. Now, the problem is that's really touchy-feely and hard to quantify. How can I tell if someone is treating someone well, and how do I put a metric around it and then be able to quantify it and bring it to a number, right? That's that's a very difficult task to do. Um, so Chad and I put our heads together and figure out a way to do that, quite frankly, um, and bring it down to tactical form um, to engage a driver's heart and mind and, and therefore affect action. Um, and it has worked. And it's worked primarily because we had a group of leadership uh, in place when I got here, in particular Kimberly Cage, who is the director of training, who was so receptive to the idea. Had it been someone else in training, they didn't understand human nature like she does, it wouldn't have been near as effective, but because she understood it as well. Um, so okay. we, we restructured the training department when I got back and um, applied processes that needed to be tightened up, gave people very distinct understanding of what their roles were, and they know every day what they have to do from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave and how to win and how to do their job in a manner that's exceptional. And we were able to drill that down into an actual quantifiable way. That was all produced by the experience out there on the road. How does this all present to uh, the driver force out there? Like, uh, you know, as these things are being changed in the, in the training department, what what's changing for uh, what do they see that's different? Drivers. Yeah, what do they see that's different? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, um... so in the training department, particularly, you you get a new crop of drivers every two weeks. So that okay, for right. them to say it's changing, they don't know what it was before. Right, right. Right. So every two, three, or four weeks, we're we're shifting anyway. So that's it was easiest to change there because it's always changing. Um. So no, it, the driver, all the drivers saw that was different was that the call was being answered more quickly. The issues were being resolved. They weren't being, now, was it 100%? No, but, but every day we're getting better and better. The issues being resolved in the first call, they were met and greeted warmly and with respect, and they were, everything was followed through on. They were rerouted in when they were supposed to. They were routed home when they were supposed to. So basically, we we deliver on what was promised in an exceptional manner. So that's what they saw. 
we call it the buy now button. So if you, it took a lot of work to get to that point that we could actually do those things. So if you, the Amazon buy it now button, right? It's my fake kid's very favorite thing. And it's cost me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but there are millions of lines of code underneath that buy it now button that we don't see. All we see is a buy it now button. So how we liken this to what we did is there were hundreds of hours spent to be able to get to the driver buy it now button. So all they see is that. Very simple. Not even, it looks, quite frankly, it looks very easy. But underneath it where the complexity is, is what we did so they can have the buy it now button throughout their training. Because the more complex you make something for the end user, which was our driver, the more friction you involve in something, the less likely it is that there's, you're going to find success. We inside the training department took that complexity and then delivered it in a simple way to the drivers. I think I think the end result. Um, it sounds like just by basically change, sort of changing the, some of the processes on the back end and being more responsive. I think so, you said something like um, uh, the, the retention of the new hires, at least people coming out of the training program, increased. Uh, twofold is that is that correct that that is correct so there's natural attrition that's going to happen but um yep that is correct we saw a huge jump in retention the biggest thing we did within our um when i say how do you quantify basically exceptional care how can i do that we broke down in the train department in particular, in every department I go into, we're now going into our customer service and, and utilizing these same principles, but it's going to look dramatically different because the process is different. But in our training department, 90% of the day is spent on the phone. So if we want to move the needle quickest, we've got to improve our phone skills. Um, And we take it to, to that simple of a process. So we have an outbound call system where our agents, our training agents will call and, and um, see how people are doing and try to get in front of the issues. And they know every step of the way, we've broken it down into six different steps. So before they make the call, they do the research and we broke it down, how do they do that? And then how you greet the driver. And then we call it clear the path, how you clear the path. So get in, in front of any issue, but how do you do that? What questions do you use? And then we actually listen to the calls. So we pick random calls every week from every single agent. You listen to the calls and you grade them. That's where their behavioral awareness comes. They know that they'll be graded. They know what is expected. We had one situation where a man who's been here about six years, he didn't understand how he was coming across. And you listen to, they're pretty bad, his calls. And we bring him in and we say, now listen, listen to what you're doing. And until we could actually point it out to him, there was no way he was going to be better. He's going to fail at his job every time. He's been moved to three or four different departments. He was going to fail at his job every time because it was, it was never broken down to him how to change. And when you take the call flow, what we call it, and take every step and teach them how to do it, teach them how to connect, then you empower them to be able to change their job, their job description, their experiences in their job, so that they can change the experience for the driver. And this isn't just in transportation. This is actually right. holds true for any industry. 
once you engage your employee base, they'll engage the end user. Once you teach them and empower them to be successful, the end user will find success with your company as well. And that's what we did in the training department. Yeah, I wonder if um, if that then can somehow find its way to the to the to the outside world uh, uh, from the drivers themselves. Um, if you're if you're if you come to expect a higher level of of care, you know, uh, from from your people you're dealing with at your employer. Yeah. Can you expect also expect that from everyone else? You know, it's just kind of one of these. I hope so. Uh, just one of these what I if questions, so. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I hope so because these people I met changed my life, and they are good, and they are, are quite frankly are worthy of being treated well. And sure. was shocking. I had lived in a professional world my whole life, um, apparently very sheltered one where I was used to being treated a certain way. I was used to the people around me being treated a certain way. And I didn't realize that that was not universal. This privilege that we, in a certain class, come to expect, we don't understand that that is not universal. I was shocked by the way my friends were treated because they didn't look the way that other people look. Quite frankly, that's what it is. Maybe they didn't talk the way other people talked. And I had never lived it. I never experienced it. I never had known it. I'd heard of this privilege that I have, but I had never understood it. And when I say that the experience is life-changing, that's what it was. It was this understanding that because so many of us were born into this privilege. We have an obligation to those who've never known it. A couple of days into school, I was walking out to the range and um, struck up conversation because that was my job with one of the students there, a female student. And um, this female student had to be African-American. And um, as are many of the female students there. Um, and it's, her world is completely different because of her race, because of her gender, because of her social class. Um, it's a completely different world than mine was. And we started talking and um, she was so kind. And she just thought I was a regular student. She didn't, so there's no agenda in this conversation for her. And um, I asked her how she was doing and she said she just got off a Greyhound and she'd been there for 48 hours and hadn't eaten anything but crackers because she used her last penny to get there. And, um, and she, had to, she had to make enough money. She had to graduate fast. So her son, she'd get money to her son so they weren't evicted. She, the son was living with the father, uh, excuse me, the grandfather at the time. And um, so she and I became fast friends. Um, and she had been so used to this lifestyle of going without to give to her son, um, allowing people to treat her a certain way because that's what she had been used to in her life. And I watched her and I watched how she interacted with people, what her expectation of the interaction would be. And it was so vastly different than my expectation of what an interaction would be. Um, what she was willing to tolerate, what her threshold was, all these things that make her vulnerable 
And luckily she fell into the hands of Sierra England, which took very good care of her. Um, but she was going to get on a truck without a cell phone. She was going to all these things that no one else would have done. No woman would get on a cell phone or excuse me, get on a truck without a cell phone with a trainer they don't know to drive across the country. But this is things that she, she just had done her whole life. Um, and her willingness to accept me being so different than she was, and maybe even in a political environment that we should have been enemies, her softness towards me um, was a real eye-opener, and uh, her life and how different it was. And that's, I could tell you time and time again, another dear friend who's been incarcerated for about 20 years of his 55 years and um, what he has gone through and how people chose to treat him because he didn't look the part he and um, has lived a very hard life. And he, his world is different than my world. But yet, what drives him is the same exact thing that drives me. And what connects him to another human being is the same exact thing that connects me. And the three of us went out to lunch one time when we were at school. And that's a little bit like one of these things doesn't look like the other. And we all sat there and just enjoyed the camaraderie that the three of us had with each other. Though our lives were so vastly different. The connection we had was as if we had known each other forever. And it's it's because of their kindness towards me and their acceptance of me. And those are the people that need this stewardship and this understanding. And usually the ones that they get it at the very least. But they're the most vulnerable among us. And so... Here at Sierra England, we have a, a leader in Chad and in Kimberly who understands that that's not only just our job, but it's a responsibility we have. And do we fail at it sometimes? For sure. Yeah. We're all humans. But we're trying to set up a process that we lose the least amount of these people as possible. Pam Wilson's story about the female driver who'd subsisted on crackers for her first 48 hours in training prompted me to ask a question about money, ultimately, about pay and perhaps better financial assistance to new hires and trainees that come on board. England is a business like any other, she noted, operating in the real world, and it's the company's hope that they're setting up drivers to build new success for themselves. She stressed the size of the company, too, and its operations, vast amounts of money that uh, takes to maintain, ultimately bringing the conversation back to empathy. There's a quality and human interaction well worth more than its weight in gold. We have a large school one of the largest in the country, that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, of financial of resources to manage. So quite frankly, I feel like the gentleman does it better than most trying to manage all that and still be able to, to pay all of our employee base and all those things that are so important. Um, but let me give you another example. Um, we had a call caller come in and we're teaching our, our agents our training, uh, training agents to be able to really drill down and find the systemic issue of why they're calling. Because if you can't do that, if you cannot get to the issue, then it will keep on resurfacing and we'll lose people. Yeah. Um, so we had a caller and one of our, one of our best agents happened to answer it. Um, and he was on, he was in phase one and we'd caught him in, in our outbound calls. So calling to see how they're doing. 
and he'd been on the truck for about a week. And uh, so she asked, how are you doing? And he said, I'm stressed. Well, before this training, and most of us as human beings would just say, oh, that's too bad, and then continue on the call. But she didn't. She stopped. And she said, you're stressed. Still, tell me about that. What's going on? And he said, um, I couldn't sleep last night. So in our world, when, when someone who just got on is a teamer, says they, they can't sleep, it usually means they can't sleep while the truck's moving, which is difficult. It could be difficult to do that. I, I did it for a week. And um, so we teach them some, some coping mechanisms of how to get sleep on a truck. But because she's perceptive and she's been trained, she understood that that wasn't the systemic issue. Not sleeping on the truck isn't there. We haven't hit it yet. And she said, so tell me, why haven't you slept on the truck? What's going on? Expecting him to say it's very difficult to sleep while the truck's moving or whatever, right? But he didn't. He got welled up. He got very emotional. I called my wife yesterday, and we're going to be evicted from our house. Now, that's a very different conversation than you can't sleep because the truck is moving. And we can't pay his mortgage, right? We can't pay his rent. So how do you train someone to handle a call like that and show empathy, but yet figure out what's the best course of action? And she was brilliant in her response. She said, I'm guessing, and in the most kind and warm voice, she said, I'm guessing that's why you decided to make a, a change in your career. So you could improve your, your family's life. Is that right? And he agreed. So you've got one more week until you get a pay increase. Can you wait one more week? Will your family be okay for one more week? And then you're in phase two. And he said, yeah, I could wait more, one more week. And then she did some other things. She gave him an advance and things like that. But um, she took care of him. She saw him as a human being and gave him hope that his situation can change. Because every I have been in situations where I didn't know how where I was going to keep the lights on. I know this feeling. It's scary. I know this feeling. And so did she. She understood the feeling and she could empathize with him. But yet, keep him focused on what the goal was. If you go home now, this last five weeks is for nothing. Like one more week, bud. Can you just stay one more week? And then did what we could do on our end to help him. We didn't just leave him high and dry but we did what we could do on our end to help him. But that's the shift. Not just stepping over I'm stressed and pretending he didn't say it so I can get off the call as quickly as possible. But understanding right. our obligation to one another, not just because I have a position that I'm supposed to answer this phone, but because you're a human being, and my obligation goes well beyond my employment. And if you can tap into your employee base and get to that point, where their obligation to one another and to the end user is beyond their employment, you've won. Perhaps those are some actionable thoughts there for uh, those among you who employ people in the business, though for most I know truly appreciating what a driver goes through is no real challenge. Wilson's sentiment own expectations in our personal interactions though reminds me a bit of something small fleet owner Les Willis told Paul Moorhofer about his volunteer organizing of the GATS parking lot activities these many years. Willis said, if you're not getting, maybe it's because you're not giving. Easily applied to appreciation of those we share this planet and the business with.
in our personal interactions. In any case, some food for thought. Finally, on the podcast today, a little audio from That's a Big Ten Four on DC, on the National Mall last week, uh, where uh, I got the chance to talk with a group of well-seasoned independent truckers representing, representing themselves and speaking to the public, Congress, and regulators on the critical trucking issues they feel are most of note. This audio selects some key moments in my many conversations with owner-operators there. It also provided the soundtrack to a video of the roll-in to the National Mall of the Three Dozen Haulers early, early Thursday morning last week. You can find that at overdriveonline.com, search 104 on DC. The voices you'll hear there, uh, excuse me, here, the voices you'll hear here in order of initial appearance. Owner-operator Gehrman Soweth of Frederick, Maryland. Kit Spanfellner of Northwest Ohio, leased to Davidson Trucking. Generations Express owner-operator Brian Hutchins of Oklahoma, Independent Ruben Carrion of Kissimmee, Florida, and Iowa-based Mike Jellison, also running independent. It was an opportunity to park my truck on the National Mall. I mean, you can't beat that. I mean, if you don't do anything else, you're on the National Mall looking at your your Congress and your Senate, and you can go up there and talk to them if you want. Have it right, do it the right way. What's your reason for coming out here? What does it mean for you? Uh, have our voices heard about the regulations, the 14 hour, the 11 hour rule with these ELDs. I mean, there's got to be some kind of flexibility. I mean, everybody's racing the clock now. When before, we always tired, we can take your break, then wake up, feel refreshed, and take off again. And it's just a headache anymore. I mean, you can't find parking spots. There's no parking. We, we need, you want to set these regulations to us, but you're not helping the cause. I mean, it's hard to find parking spots anymore. I think the proposed changes are probably going to be the best chance we get to actually fix the hours of service where they work better for everyone. You know, we, we need a true split sleeper berth, and it's evident reading through the publication they put out that they actually listened to a bunch of those comments in there. If you look, they actually cited a bunch of those comments in there, which is something previously I felt like we never even really had a relationship with the FMCSA where it seems like now they're at least actually listing compared to before you didn't feel like you had any say at all. I don't know. I really pretty much always retired. You know, I wish that we don't have so many regulations. They come out with the yield. They pretty much took all my, I feel my freedom. You know, I don't. Now I got a computer telling me what to do, and you know, I, I want to follow the rules. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't. I want to, you know, be more flexible. You know, but you know, not just the, you know, I want to stop my truck, take a nap, you know, when I want, and I want the computer does. The driver is responsible for this rig, this truck, his well-being when he's out on the road. He knows what it takes for him to operate safely. You can't take a clock and just say, you're gonna work within this clock and that's gonna make you safer. You can't mandate safety, you have to train safety. I've said that over and over. And it's true because you you can mandate anything to happen. It doesn't mean the effect that it has is gonna come out to be positive in the long run as we're actually starting to see now with the hours of service we currently have, now all these guys are racing against this clock versus before they could stop. It's just like DC traffic. You come to DC traffic and you're hitting rush hour, 
if 5,000 trucks could stop before they got here and take a break for three hours and let traffic die down before they come through town, it would be safer for the general public and for the drivers as well if they come through at night or in the evening after all the traffic has died down. Not only that, it creates less congestion on the roadways during the peak hours. I grew up, my dad was a trucker and he was an owner-operator. Uh, whenever I was real young, he was hauling livestock uh, over in the Midwest, just off the farm basically into the packing houses. But uh, back, I guess it was along about 74, 73, 74, he bought a couple of reefer trailers then. And at that time I was around 13 years old. I, I grew up riding around with him. I, I've been involved in him most all my life. Well, I got a lot of friends that we uh, are, you know, concerned about the a lot of the government overreach and the rules and regulations in trucking. And we just come out just to try to raise the awareness of what's going on and. That's about it, really. I mean, that and a little break. It's then you got new drivers coming out here. They're doing these virtual classes, or I, there's got to be something going about that. They got to have more regulations on training. I mean, you just can't send a guy to school for six weeks and get him in a truck and he's free to go to work. I mean, it takes experience. I was in a truck with. I drove with my grandpa. I drove with friends, and it's just an experience you got to have. Like right now, there's talk about moving the uh, required million-dollar liability policy insurance yeah. to 4.8. Right, right, right. Which right now, my one million-dollar policy is so expensive, yeah. I can hardly afford that. Yeah. I can't imagine 4.8 million yeah. what that would cost. I mean, because right now I feel like what I'm paying for a million ought to provide 4.8 million. <laughs> yeah, right. It's right. a lot of money. Right. I do more for the new generation, you know, the new guys. I'm pretty much, you know, done what I can, and you yeah. know. But I, I wish everybody, all the new guys, you know, be on to own their own truck and their little business. But the way I look at it is, you know, I don't know, probably another five years, you know, we have to work for big corporation or uh, probably not me but you know, right. you know but I like trucking's been good to me I, I love trucking and I still like it but you know it's, you just have your little business you know I don't I don't ask for too much and I expect the new guys I see a little kids in here I love trucking probably they will drive truck probably not there's a little kid in here he was so excited I, yeah, up and down my truck and yeah. and I wish he you know see he decided to be a trucker, you know, he got his own opportunity that I have, you know, but it's not going to To me, I don't know, I'm probably wrong, it's not going <laughs> to happen again, you know. Just, like I say, you know, they put an electronic book, it's like it took my last freedom. Well, our hope is to really gain some interest in it, I mean, try to get yeah. unity uh, amongst our kind, because that's what needs to happen is we need to unify and, and make a stand uh, before these lawmakers and these people that are trying to regulate uh, everything that we do. Without that, we're just 
spinning our wheels, but we hope to gain unity 